0: Um, open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians and Ephesians 5. <clears throat> uh, I mentioned, I guess it's two weeks ago now, I was going to preach at a church and um, I was going to be doing something on Baptist history or doctrine, and I asked the pastor, uh, have you taught on Baptist distinctives recently? And he said, No, that would be something good for you to do. And I had this thought: if someone asked someone at Grace Baptist Church, has your pastor taught on the Baptist distinctives lately? Well, it's been five or six years at least since we have done this, so uh, I thought it would be a good time to do it again. Now, I want to answer a couple of things. Number one, if you're a guest or like my sister here, yes, I do actually speak on other things besides this particular subject. Um, (laughs) You you get known for doing one thing. It's funny, but um, secondly, how many of you ever had this thought? Well, I know Baptists that don't believe this. Have you ever heard someone say that? Um, And so that's something that we do need to address. Boy, there are a lot of really bad Baptist churches in the world. Just because it has Baptist on the name does not mean it's a doctrinally correct church. All right? You know, and it's just like the American Civil Liberties Union uses the term American. Right? It was founded by communists. Right? Right? It, so, and if you're not sure of that, check it out. <laughs> You'll find that it's true. Um, just because something calls itself American doesn't mean it, ide- it aligns with the American ideal of liberty and private property and, and all of those things, constitutional government. Um, that's the same thing with Baptist. But when we talk about the American ideal, th- that is easily identifiable. You can, you can trace that back to what that means. It's the same thing with these Baptist distinctives. Um, Now, I I will say this, the fundamentalist movement, many of us come from fundamentalist churches. Others come from different denominations, or you were saved at this church. But those of us who come from fundamentalist churches, um, fundamentalism was a movement that started at the end of the 1800s to combat liberalism in the seminaries. And it was an ecumenical movement, meaning people from different denominations. So there were conservative Anglicans or or Methodists or Presbyterians, Lutherans, um, and some Baptists. It was a primarily uh, Protestant movement um, of the original fundamentals. That's where the term fundamentalist comes from. A series of books that were put out by two businessmen ended up being edited by a man named R.A. Torrey, uh, who was pastor at Moody Church in Chicago. But uh, it was a series of booklets that came out identifying what it is to be a true Christian. All right? And so they they said, if you agree with these fundamentals, then you are a Christian. If you disagree with these, then you're outside of the realm of what broader Christianity would accept. Of the 54 articles, there were nine of them that were written by Baptists. So Baptists did contribute to it. Um, But the fundamentalist movement... Led to uh, the really the what were the, the great crusades Billy Sunday D L Moody um, Sam Jones uh, moving on into the into the twentieth century uh, then into Billy Graham and others Bob Jones Sr. Well what happened with these big citywide movements citywide crusades to get people to come together for evangelism. What they said is we need to leave our doctrinal differences at the door. How many of you have ever heard someone say that? I remember when I first came here as pastor 17 years ago, I was asking Tom Ferrier about a Christian organization. And Brother Ferrier said to me, he doesn't remember saying this, but I remember you saying it. He said, I refuse to participate with any organization that requires me to leave my Baptist distinctives at the door. So, in order, if someone says, "In order to participate in this, you can't bring in what you actually believe," well, then why participate, right? And so, what happened in the Christian colleges, the the fundamentalist movement, because of the corruption of, say, Princeton Theological Seminary or uh, Brown University, which had been a Baptist college, and the all of the seminaries in America were affected by modernism, which is. They didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They didn't believe in the virgin birth of the deity of Christ. Just, you know, non-essential things like that. Those are essentials. That was sarcasm. If you don't believe in the deity of Christ, you're not saved. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you're not saved. And so these things became very important. So what happened was uh, groups of people came together and they established colleges, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, um, Uh, Bob Jones College was started in Cleveland, Tennessee and moved to Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, Then Tennessee Temple College was started in Chattanooga. Uh, Matt Hickman graduated from there. And then out west, Biola, Baptist Institute of Los Angeles. Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller was started by Charles Fuller, who had the Old Time Revival Hour. Do any of you remember the Old Time Revival Hour? Rudy Atwood playing the piano and all of that. Um, you young people don't know about that. Some of our older folks, that, that, was, that was quite a work that uh, Charles Fuller had. He was a great preacher. Uh, well, he started a college, and in that college, he, they, they had a requirement that you had to sign a statement that said you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. As soon as he died, his son David took over, and David Fuller, and they removed that, and so the college went away immediately as a, as a solid school. So what happened was all of these schools rose up as fundamental fundamentalist colleges, but without a doctrinally distinct basis. So they held to those fundamentals, and then they held to certain standards as far as music and dress and haircuts on men and going to the theater and things like that. Uh, but when it got down to things like, that they called non-essentials, things like eternal security or believer's baptism, or a born-again church membership, you know, non-essentials like that, those things, they they went away. So even good Baptist churches stopped teaching these things. I have taught the Baptist distinctives in churches where someone's been there for 50 years and they've said, this happened to me last week. God said, I've been in church for 50 years. I've never heard of individual soul liberty. I had a, a nationally known pastor, all right, um, anyone in independent fundamental Baptist churches knows who this guy is. And he called me, and he said, um, <laughs> if I imitated him, you'd know who he was, so I won't. Um, but he said, Brother Alter, I keep hearing this term individual soul liberty. I was taught individual soul responsibility. He said, what is "What is what? What is the difference? What is the the story behind this? And I said, well, individual soul responsibility was made up by people who don't believe in individual soul liberty. And it's interesting. Many fundamentalists are scared to death of liberty. Because they want to be able to control the people in their behavior. I can't control you. I can't even get you all to sit in the right place in the auditorium. I can't (laughs) I can't control you. And it's it's silly to try. Talk about a recipe for frustration. Try and control people, and and what's interesting is the people that God has brought to Grace Baptist Church. Some of you are sitting back there thinking, yeah, just try to control me. Just try to. That's why I've got to pray that the Holy Spirit gives you know gives you a heart attack or something to get your attention. That's all that I can do. No, there's probably not good humor. Um, <laughs> See, that, that individual soul liberty that we talked about last week, it, it, it's so vital because I can teach you the truth, but I can't make you believe it or obey it, right? And that's where the Holy Spirit becomes so important. If you love the Lord and you love the Holy Spirit and you want to submit to His Word, then you'll do what the Bible says. If I, if I command you to do something that is outside the Scriptures, I have no authority for that command, I, I don't. Now, as as pastor of the church, and we'll look at this in a few minutes, Lord willing, um, that as pastor, I'm the overseer of this church. I'm the administrator. So if we have a rule that the guys on the platform are going to wear a tie, okay? Well, we can make that rule. That's not a heaven or hell rule. It's just saying we want to put this forward. This is what we're going to do. I don't care whether you guys wear ties or not. I, I I heard a guy say that that wearing a tie feels like being being strangled slowly by a very weak man. (laughs) I don't care whether a person wears a tie or not, but in fundamentalism, there are people that would say, that's a cardinal doctrine, man. If you don't wear a tie, you're not right with God. I know preachers that when they go to camp with their teenagers, they'll go swimming with the boys, they'll wear a tie in the swimming pool. Man, when I was a teenager, I would have drug him around the pool by that time. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I don't, th- that's what fundamentalism did. Fundamentalism made a farce of Christianity. Um, now, if you're a guest or you happen to be listening to this online or whatever, don't get mad at me. Check it out. Um, it, it's a problem. And so that's why we teach these distinctives. We teach these distinctives. There are organizations of Baptists that are completely unscriptural. They have taken individual like the American Baptist Convention. You can go to an American Baptist Church that has you know a, a, a sodomite pastor you know just it 's just the most corrupt, vulgar thing you can ever imagine, and what they say is they base that on individual soul liberty. but as we saw last week, individual soul liberty doesn 't mean you can do whatever you want you 're going to answer to God for that. The issue is you don 't answer to me for it right now, as a church. You do answer to us as a church. We can say, you know, Patrick, you're going to behave a certain way. You can't be a member of Grace Baptist Church. Isn't that right? We looked at that last week. That becomes very important. That's why church membership is an important subject. All right, so now, I just wanted to answer a few of those things at the beginning. Why hasn't this been taught? Because of fundamentalism. If you want to have a large group of Christians come together, if you preach doctrine, there will be disagreement and division. Because doctrine always divides. Remember what Jesus said? I came to separate father and mother. And Doctrine always separates. Doctrine brings unity where people agree with the Scriptures. Where people disagree with the Scriptures, we can't walk together because the Bible says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And if we're going to agree with Scripture, then we will have to separate from someone else who disagrees with Scripture. Now, I know you might be thinking you might be thinking, well, they would say that they base their position on Scripture. No, they don't. They base it on tradition. Or when you read a Scripture, they'll say, well, that's not what that means. Right? We just take it for what it says, and uh, that's what we'll do. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for the opportunity to preach it today. And Lord, thank you that we have the opportunity to come together as a church and study these things. Lord, we want to glorify you. We don't want to be offensive. We don't want to be harsh. Uh, Lord, we want to put the exclamation points where you do. So help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. All right, 2 Corinthians 11, we're at verse 1. Now we're at verse 2, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. For I am jealous over you with, a, with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. All right, so he's writing this to the church at Corinth, and he wants them to be a pure church. Can you see that? He's very concerned that to be a pure church. What is going to rob them from that purity or of that purity? Verse 3. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, um, Ed Bermond is grinning. We were at a on one of our Baptist history tours. We went to this mountain church, I think in North Carolina, and this preacher preached that night on on the subtility of uh, of Satan. It was awesome um, but I fear. Lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him, For I suppose I was not a wit behind the very chiefest of apostles. And this is my life's verse. But though I be rude in speech, let that sink in for a minute. Yet though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. And he goes on and and talks about how he behaved among them. One of the things that it is the pastor's job to do is maintain the purity of the church through doctrinal teaching and preaching. We could go through all of the passages in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles that emphasize doctrine, and it would take us a little while. It, it, doctrine is God's truth in God's words. Not counsels, not creeds, not statements of faith, but Scripture. God's truth and God's word. That is our authority, and that was the first of our Baptist distinctives, the Bible as our sole authority. The second is the autonomy of the local church. If the Bible is our sole authority, and according to Colossians 1.18, he's given Christ the preeminence in all things concerning the church, then Christ is the head of the church. There's no hierarchy but Jesus. So we have the Bible as our sole authority and the autonomy of the local church. The reason that works is because of the the third of our distinctives, and that is the priesthood of the believer. Uh, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is our go-between. And now because of that, we have access to the throne of God. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. So we now have access to the throne of God as priests. The Bible says in First Peter that we are a, a royal priesthood a holy nation that we should bring forth praises to God. So the, that is the priesthood of the believer. You don't confess your sins to each other. You take your sin to the Father through Jesus Christ directly. We confess our faults one to another. I might say I meet I meet uh, Tristan here and then 2 years later I can't remember his name. How many of you have experienced that with me? <laughs> All right? It's a fault of mine. I don't know. I'll, be, I'll just draw a blank. I can't I can remember what happened in 1382, but I can't remember somebody's name that I met yesterday. That's a fault of mine. Here's another fault of mine. I sometimes preach longer than average. <laughs> I hold the record for the longest sermon in many churches. Um, how many of you have heard of Leonard Ravenhill? Leonard Ravenhill. It's an amazing preacher. Um, he was a, a revivalist. It, I, I, was, I, I watched a video clip of him where he had preached at, a, at the Southern Baptist Convention, and he preached for three and a half hours and wasn't invited back. <laughs> but there were people at the altar all night after that. And it, it, it was an amazing thing. So anyway, one of my faults is I might preach too long. Another one of my faults is I'm scattered in my mind. You know, sometimes I don't go from point A to point B in a sermon. It's point A and then Missoula. (laughs) You know, it's just uh, so. those are faults. That's confessing our faults. What does that do? It helps people understand you. Right? It helps people people understand you. Um, But we don't confess our sins to each other. You know, uh, when Nick and I were discipling together, I might confess something to Nick, a, 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 a personal struggle with sin that I have, so he could pray with me. And then he goes to the Lord interceding for me and gives me godly counsel through that. That's what a priest does. Is that right? But so you yeah, have the Bible as your sole authority, autonomy of the local church. The reason that works is because of the priesthood of the believer. Then there are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. An ordinance is something that the God, that Jesus has ordered to be done in the church. Then the, the next, and they're not sacraments, you don't receive grace through them, you receive grace as a free gift from Jesus Christ, all right? Then uh, last week we looked at individual soul liberty, and that's the foundation for American government is that concept of individual soul liberty, all right? So tonight, or today, I want us to go to the S, and I think we'll be able to finish our acrostic today um, if I preach one of those three and a half hour sermons. Um, the S is a saved church membership, saved baptized church membership, a saved baptized church membership. I want you to think about something. We, we've we've read here in the text how Paul was afraid that the church at Corinth was going to be beguiled, that Satan would beguile them away from the simplicity of the gospel, away from the simplicity of the gospel. What is the gospel? Look at 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 1. Y'all doing okay this morning? You glad to be in church? Is that the longest introduction in history? All right. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. "...by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain." What is believing in vain? It's believing in nothing. Praying a prayer, agreeing with certain facts, without genuine conversion. Genuine conversion is repentance of sin, which is your turning from your sin to Jesus Christ. It's understanding that your sin will take you to hell and only Jesus can save you. And then receiving the free gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ has offered believing in His death, burial, and resurrection. The, so if you believe in that, then you're saved. If you're believing in anything else, you have believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to the Scriptures. That's That's our authority. That's the gospel. So when you add something to that, that is the subtlety of Satan beguiling the church. Is that right? And that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Remember what he said. If somebody brings another Christ, you might believe. If somebody brings another spirit, you might receive him. If somebody brings you another gospel, you might accept that. And Paul was very concerned about that. Uh, Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it "...with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish." That's what Christ wants the church to be. Is that right? Well, how can a church be holy if they're not saved? Because you don't have any holiness. I don't have any holiness. The only holiness that we have is the holiness that comes from Christ. I don't have any righteousness. The righteousness, the only righteousness that I have is a foreign righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that is put on me at salvation. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. I don't have any righteousness. Is that right? All right. All um, right. Let's look at a couple of other verses. Then I want to read you some things. Look at Acts chapter two, verse forty-one. Oh, you're turning. Up. It's interesting. There are people who don't think that you should teach something like this on a Sunday morning. You shouldn't teach doctrine. You need to. You need to preach helpful things on Sunday mornings because doctrine's not helpful. It's, isn't that interesting? All right, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. The the communal thing, that's because Christians didn't have enough to live on by themselves. They were denied things because they were saved. So they pooled their resources to help one another. What a blessing that is. This is not a verse commending communism. Right? Communism is this. That cool new truck of yours? I don't think it's fair that you have it. I'm going to kill you if you don't give it to me. That's communism. It has nothing to do with Acts chapter 2. Amen. That's right, Amen? But how many of you think that the Holy Spirit ought to lead him to give me that truck? I think that that's good. <laughs> now, so I just want to dispense with that. It's clear what's going on here. Um, communists are just liars. It's the basis of their, of their faith. Um, so here you have people who are saved... And they're baptized. They continue in the apostles' doctrine. Is that right? They're they are ministering the word house to house. They're believing the same thing, and that's the church. They're added to them through salvation and baptism, 3,000 souls to that church. Do you see that in the text? This is a saved, baptized church membership. All right? But look at the order, verse 41. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. The same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. All right? So a saved, baptized church membership. Look at 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 14. I think one of the things that's always so interesting to me is how familiar verses, familiar passages of Scripture, I think everybody in this room, just about everyone in this room will have seen this verse before. But we misunderstand the context. Let's look, the, let's look at the verse, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, most of the time when you hear that verse, it's being used to say that a Christian should not marry a lost person. How many of you would agree with that? Right, And that's a true statement. A Christian should not marry a lost person. You are asking for trouble. You're asking for trouble. I as pastor wouldn't marry you. I wouldn't do that. Now, praise God, there are people that save people that marry a lost person. That lost person gets saved and they go on and serve God together. And we're very thankful for that. I know people that are like that. For every one of those, I know about a thousand that it went the other way. And life was miserable for them. But that's not the primary teaching of this passage. Look at it again. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Or what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And we could go on. He gives more and more illustrations of it. This is talking about the church. In the church, you can't have saved people and lost people. You can't have a believer and an infidel. In the church, it's saved, regenerate, it's a born-again and baptized church membership. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to give you an illustration of why this is so important in a minute that I think will help you to recognize it. Uh, second or Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How many would love to see unity in Christianity? It's, it's not happening. You know that, right? It's not happening. Unity is not happening. Why? Because our unity has to be based on what we're about to read. Look at what the Bible says. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. All right? So that's what we're supposed to gather around. One God, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one body. That's it. What is the body? It's the body of Christ. How does a person get in the body of Christ? Through salvation. You're baptized into the body of Christ at salvation by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. What's the context of that? Verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Every saved person, every person who's placed their faith and trust in Christ alone for their eternal life, is baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ, His one body. Is that right? I like to ask guys this. Where is Christ's body right now? And they'll say, well, it's the church. No, 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 no. I didn't ask you any spiritual thing. Where is Christ's body right now? It's at the right hand of the Father. you all agree with that? you all agree with that? Yeah. Amen. That's why it's so important to be in Christ. Ephesians, the whole theme of Ephesians is being in Christ. The Bible says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. If you're saved, you're in Christ. If you're not saved, you're not in Christ. That's it. All of the benefits of salvation come from being in Christ. Is that right? Absolutely. That's our security. That's our faith. Well, then what is the church supposed to be? What's the church supposed to be? We're supposed to be the body of Christ. How many of you have heard that before? You've heard that before. How does that work in local congregations? In local congregations. Why? Because those those believers have to come together in a specific location, agreeing on specific truth, Submitting themselves one to another in the Word of God in order to be able to accomplish God's work in the world, that's the only way the church is supposed to work on earth. That's it. that's why it's so important that we have a saved church membership because what the local church is, it's the visible physical <laughs> visible. It's the, it's the visible, physical. Manifestation of the spiritual body. And so there are local churches just like this all over the world worshiping today. And they're all churches. They're all representing Christ in the world. That's what God's plan is. That's clear, isn't it? Well, then why are are the churches such a mess? Can you imagine? I'll just, let's just do one example. Go to 1 Timothy. Get 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. That's another one of those verses I've never seen on a pillow. (laughs) But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Okay? Now, how many of you think that's pretty much a clear statement of Scripture? Is there any equivocation there? Well, what that means is... How many of you think you pretty much know what it means? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Now, how many of you are struggling to understand that? How many of you think that's pretty much a clear teaching in the Scripture? Well, then why do churches have women pastors? Well, this was a cultural thing. And in that culture, is that what it says? No. It says women aren't supposed to be pastors. Well, I don't think that's fair. I think I ought to be able to preach. Whatever. Go and preach. You just can't agree with the Bible. I wonder how a woman preacher can ever say, look at what this says, believe it. See, this is an illustration of how there are churches all over the world that simply do not submit to the Scriptures. Is that fair? And here's what happens. There are always in a room this size... I said this to a church, uh, some guys just recently. There are generally three kinds of people in a church there are, there's the core of the church that they're going to they're gonna serve the Lord, love the Lord, march through trouble with you, and we're just going to go together and serve the Lord. Then there's the Pharisees in the church that when somebody messes up, they're not happy unless you take them out in the parking lot and kill them. Okay? And then you have people on the other side, they're the mercy people, that it doesn't matter how much you do for the, the, the sinners, you've never done enough. Those are the people that that you have in the church. And so I know there's probably someone in here thinking, as I say this, well, my mother goes to a church with a woman pastor. She loves Jesus. I don't doubt that she loves Jesus. It's just they're wrong. I can't help you. Is that clear? Is that clear? So what we have to understand is there are churches that are attempting to be obedient to the scriptures and submit to the scriptures their sole authority there are other churches are just doing their own thing i don't want to be a church where we're just doing our own thing i want to be a church that's submitting to the scriptures and the lord jesus christ in all things Is that fair that's what we want to do um so that's an example of what happens in churches when they don't submit to the authority of the Scriptures. So if we're going to have a church, then the proper order must be observed. The proper order is salvation, baptism, and then church membership. Is that fair? How many of you can see that that's very clear in the Scriptures? It's just very clear. I know there's probably a few people in here, I don't believe in church membership. Whatever, then throw 1 Corinthians out of your Bible. Okay? I, I, I don't know what to tell you. We're members together. When you set someone outside the body, how do you do that? If it's talking about the body of Christ, then you have to kill them. Now, I know there's guns in the room. Some of you are saying, hey, I'm in. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Shoot them for Jesus. <laughs> Carol's, with, no, pastor, don't say that, no. Obviously, that's not how you set somebody outside the body. You set them outside the body by, re- by removing them from membership. How can you remove somebody from something they haven't joined? If you come back, we're going to call the police. Now, we might do that if it was somebody that was disorderly. I've got to tell you, did you all see our ushers this morning? I feel sorry for any unruly person here. They'll break you in half. <laughs> And then Brother Ed will carry the rest of the pieces out. (laughs) That wasn't kind at all, was it? No. no. Um, Did you all notice that with the ushers today? It would be like, I should have joined you. You and me on the ends. We could be, you know, the pawns to the knights or whatever. Um, Obviously, obviously, if you're going to remove someone from the body, that's got to be the local church not the body of Christ. Is that right? So it becomes very important that we understand that the order is salvation, baptism, and then church membership. That's the way that it has to work. And it's very clear in the Scriptures, but that's not the way that other faiths have it. This is the creeds of Christendom, and in this is the, uh, one of the creeds that's, that's listed, is the Augsburg Confession of Faith. So how many of you have heard of Martin Luther? This is what Martin Luther believed. Um, This is what he believed about baptism. Of baptism, and I'm just reading what, this is saying what Lutherans teach. This is uh, article number nine of baptism. Of baptism they teach that it is necessary to salvation and that by baptism the grace of God is offered and that children are to be baptized who by baptism being offered to God are received into God's favor know what they mean by children or babies. Now, baptism is not necessary for salvation. Remember Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.17, "...for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel." Isn't that interesting? So this great proponent of salvation by grace through faith alone didn't believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. i got to tell you, you've been lied to. If someone told you that Luther believed in salvation by grace through faith alone... They're liars. He didn't believe it. Can can I show you? Now, you ready for this? Well, Pastor, I don't think you should talk about the Lutherans. I don't think that we should do that. Let's see what the Lutherans did. Here's the next paragraph. They condemned the Anabaptists to allow not the baptism of children and affirm that children are saved without baptism. So the idea is if a baby dies, that baby goes to heaven. They don't need to be baptized to go to heaven. That's what the Anabaptists taught, and Luther wanted to make sure that all the Lutherans understood we disagree with the Anabaptists on that. Well, you know what? The Anabaptists disagree with you because we agree with the Bible. Isn't that interesting? How about this? Uh, see if we can find something else interesting for you on this. What does baptism do? It works forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil, and gives everlasting salvation. you all agree with that? No. No. Um, Well, anyway. There's more that I can show you. They talk about how they disagree with the Donatists because the Donatists said that the pastor needed to be pure and that if he's not preaching a pure gospel or if it's not a... A pure church, then the baptism's invalid. They said, We disagree with the Donatists on that because baptism can be done by evil men. It's crazy. It's crazy. And what happens is when the order gets messed up, when we say that the church is the door to salvation, not Jesus being the door to salvation. Okay, Jesus said, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Is that that a clear statement? Jesus said, I am the door. And any that go in thereby shall find pasture. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ends of death. There's a broad road that leads to destruction, there's a narrow road that leads to eternal life, or to life eternal. Is that all very clear? Jesus is the only way. Baptism is not the way, Jesus is the way. But when you say that the church is the door to heaven, right? When you say that, and then the government and the church are one, well, then if you deny entrance into the church, then you're also denying entrance into citizenship. And so now that's treason, and we have to kill you. This book is called Memorials of Baptist Martyrs by J. Newton Brown. Um... This one was published in 1854. Listen to what he says about infant baptism. "'Infant baptism is an error from the beginning to end, corrupt in theory and corrupting in practice, born in superstition, cradled in fear, nursed in ignorance, supported by fraud and spread by force, doomed to die in the light of historical investigation, and its very memory to be loathed in all future ages by a disabused church.'" In the realms of despotism, it has shed the blood of martyrs in torrents. That blood cries against it to heaven, and a long-suffering God will yet be the terrible avenger. The book before us is a swift witness against it. And he goes and gives testimony, evidence, evidence, evidence of infant baptism killing people who disagree with it. He writes this as a note. In no boastful spirit, but in the spirit of a martyr before God, stung by the solemn conviction of duty after 35 years of earnest and impartial investigation on this subject to speak out the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We nail these theses to the door of every every pedo-baptist church, that's baby baptizing church in Christendom, and challenge all the Christian scholarship of the age not to ignore, evade, or deny them, but to face the inevitable trial Summon the witnesses. Sift the evidence. And if it can be disproved, uh, all or any one of them. And may God help the right. You see, infant baptism, it destroys God's order. How do you end up with churches that say it's okay for a sodomite to be a pastor? How do you end up with, with churches that that make those Because they're lost people. Saved people don't make those decisions. You see? And if they do, they're behaving like lost people. So how do we at Grace Baptist Church keep that from happening? Well, you can't be a member here at Grace Baptist Church. You can't serve in any position. You can't serve in any position of authority without a credible testimony of salvation by grace through faith, followed by believer's baptism... And joining of the church, saying we agree with the doctrinal positions of Grace Baptist Church. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. Pastor, I think that's just too strict. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 9. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. What's supposed to happen in a church? We're all supposed to believe the same thing. We're just supposed to believe the same thing. Amen? Amen. Now, let's qualify that. You know, if you look at the, the image in Daniel, you say, well, I think the toenails on the image mean this. We don't have to agree on that. We do have to agree on the clear declarative statements of Scripture. Is that fair? Those things, they're not hard to agree on. And yet, as we saw in previous messages, there is disagreement in churches on things like salvation by grace through faith alone, how to get to God in prayer, who do we confess our sins to, the nature of the church, its members, what's the church made of, how about its leadership? There's disagreement about those things. There should not be disagreement about those things. The Bible is very clear, and a born-again church membership is vital. It's vital. The only way we can be a pure church is if we're all saved. Now, here's what people say. Well, uh, I think that there are lost people in Baptist churches. Well, of course there are. People lie. How many of you are shocked? <gasps> people lie? Really? You ever heard of Congress? <laughs> people lie. All right, so, so let's stop obeying the scriptures. No, no. What we do is we make sure that the person makes a credible testimony of salvation. We make sure that they follow the Lord in scriptural baptism. Right? And then we watch their lives. If they don't behave like a believer, they can't be a member of the church. Is that fair? That's what we do. And that's how you maintain a pure, righteous, and holy church. It's the way that it's done. It's just so scriptural. Okay, so let's finish up. Bible is our sole authority. Autonomy of the local church. Priesthood of the believer. Two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Individual soul liberty. Saved, baptized, church membership. I do want to say this just before we move on to the the last couple, and we'll do those quickly, is this. um, If you're not a member of Grace Baptist Church, we're glad that you're here. Keep coming. Amen? But we'd rather you join us and, and say, we're going to unite. We're going to unite. We're going to to be a part of you. We believe that that we ought to submit to the authority of the Scripture and the members of this church and unite and say, we're in it together. We're a part of you. We're going to invest our time, our talent, our treasure. We're with you. We're with you. Now, if you don't do that, we still want you to come. Amen? But it would be better if if you could be in leadership. It would be better if we could make sure that we're all on the same page. I I love that. I, I just... So anyway, there you go. All right, so that saved church membership. The next is two offices. There are only two offices in the church, the pastor and the deacon. The pastor and the deacon. Uh, There are three words that I, and and y'all don't get nervous. I'm going to be done in about five minutes, okay, ish. Um, Two offices. There's not popes and metropolitans and whatever, archbishops. and There's the pastor and the deacon. The pastor is identified by three different words. All right, pastor denotes shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? Keeps the flock together and protects them from the wolves. All right, so the pastor says, okay, let's go this direction, follow me, and then watch out for this wolf, watch out for that wolf, watch out for Joyce Myers, watch out for Benny Hinn, watch out for Joel Osteen, watch out for. Right, that's a wolf, that's a wolf, be careful, be careful. I like Joel Osteen, he's positive. Whatever um so, so that 's what the pastor does that 's the pastor 's job. The other word is elder elder. What is an elder? An elder is someone that knows god it 's a spiritual father, and so that 's why one of the qualifications for a pastor is not a novice. Let him first be proved. He has to demonstrate a holy life that's so that 's the, the 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 elder defines the pastor 's job. Of spiritual leadership in the church. Alright? And then the last is bishop, and bishop means overseer. That's the administrator. It's, it's my job. You know, I've been in churches where the song director wants to take over, and the pastor says, Well, let's let's do this type of music. I think it would fit the service better. And he says, Well, I'm the music director. And the pastor says, it's Great, I'm glad. I'm the pastor. I'm the overseer. I'm the bishop. I'm responsible. I'm in charge. Right? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but there are, how many of you have heard of elder rule churches? There's a, a, a duality of or multiplicity of rulers in the church. Um, that comes from a reaction, primarily a reaction to authoritative pastors um, and abusive senior pastors. But we don't throw out the truth because of that. You know, one of the verses they'll use is 1 Thessalonians one one, where it says, Paul, Silvanus, Timotheus, to the believers at Thessalonica, however it's addressed. Let me ask you, who do you think was in charge of that group? Paul. Who do you think in charge of John MacArthur's church? If you've ever met John MacArthur, it's John MacArthur. Okay? Now, the idea of elder rule is that you have a group of men who are all equal. The pastor is the teaching elder, but he doesn't have any more say than the other people. That's just not scriptural. It's not scriptural. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but you know, when you look at even the apostles, they're having the in, in the, the discussion about salvation by grace in Acts chapter 15. They all give their opinion. Then James, the pastor of the church, said, "But I say," and that was the end of it. That's just just scriptural. Anything with more than one head is a freak. Is that right? So it's leadership. His leadership. Now, in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. I get counsel on everything that we do here. It's not a dictatorship. We've already talked about individual soul liberty. I can't make y'all do anything. Right? But you submit to my leadership as the pastor. All right? So it is the, the pastor is the shepherd, the elder, one who knows God, spiritual leader, and the bishop is the overseer. First Peter chapter uh, five, it talks about taking the oversight, not of constraint, but willingly. What is that? The pastor shouldn't have to be forced to take the oversight, he's do it willingly. It's his job. Somebody has to make sure this ship keeps going the right direction. That's the overseer, that's the pastor. The deacons in Acts chapter six, it says, "Look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. What business? The feeding of the Grecian widows. They were being neglected in the daily ministration. So the Greeks were getting mad because their widows were being neglected. All right? It's so interesting that the little old ladies were getting mad in the early church too. It's hilarious. Isn't that funny? I think that's hilarious. And so the issue was the the pastors, which were the disciples at that point, the apostles... They couldn't make it to those all those people. And so they had holy men to take care of that work so the pastor could give his time to the Word of God in prayer. What the Bible says, is not reason that we should leave the Word of God in prayer to serve tables. What it's saying is that the pastor's time to study and pray is the most important part of the pastor's job. The purpose of the deacons is to assist the pastor by caring for the business of the church to free the pastor up, not to order the pastor around. There are a group of Baptist churches, and they're generally very good churches. It's the General Association of Regular Baptists, GARB churches. But in those churches, they have this out of bounds. The pastor works for the deacons. And it's a nightmare Time after time after time, it's just a nightmare because the deacons don't know how to pastor a church. How many of you want me to be your doctor? How many of you want me to design your airplane? Well, then you don't be my pastor. Right? Different roles. It's very clear. But here's the thing that's so important. The church can't function properly without godly deacons. Can't do it. It, let's, Let's make it real. Let's make it personal. Let's make it... Actual in our in our case here at Grace Baptist. I, I couldn't survive here without Denver Smith, and without Ty Blackford, without Ed Bermond, and without Doug Schmidtmeyer. Where's Doug? Nursery. <laughs> I, I usually try to wait for Wade to be in the nursery to do these long sermons. Um, that's tonight? You got the business meeting. That's the shortest service of the year, man. (laughs) Somebody trade with Wade. Um, We discuss everything. What do you guys think about this? What do you guys? uh, I'll say this in 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 our our regular meetings. How's the preaching? Are you learning? Are we growing? How how's the tone of the services? I ask these questions. I want the godly input from that. We need godly men in service at Grace Baptist Church. But their job is not to take the reins from the leadership. Their job is to say, Pastor, what can we do? How can we keep this thing going? What do you need? What do you need? What, do you, what does your family need? That's the job. Pastor and deacon. It's vital. And I, I challenge you to st- spend the time to read through the Scriptures on the qualification for the pastor and the qualification for the deacon. You know they're the same? Apt to teach is the difference. I ought to have more capacity to teach than the deacons do. Other than that, whatever you expect of me, that's what you should expect of these men. It's so important. It's so important that we get that. Okay, two offices. That's it. It's very simple. Then, the last is, let's see. Oh, separation of church and state. Look with me at Matthew 22. We really did spend a lot of time on this last week, so uh, we don't have to spend much time but I want you to see the scriptures on this Matthew 22 on that elder rule thing where I was preaching last week I had two men come up to me and say you skipped over elder rule I said well he said no, you conveniently skipped over elder rule I said, "Well, how long did you want to be here tonight?" I only had so much time. I didn't skip over it. I said, "I wrote a book about it here. It's twenty bucks." <laughs> and the guy went like, this. i said, serious. You're, you're concerned here. I did it here." Um, <laughs> and it was so interesting. This guy was an engineer, and I said, uh, "I said, well, I'm going to come join you in your firm." And he said, "Well, if you have the training, that's fine." And I said, "No, no, no. I'm Pastor Alter. I'm going to come join you." And he said, "Well, I said, explain to me the Graf Wellhausen documentary hypothesis. Explain how Zalafahad's daughters influenced the coming of the of the Messiah." I asked him about ten questions like that that he couldn't answer. I said, "I could do this for hours. I could spend hours naming things that I know that you don't." And he started to look kind of offended. And I said, and "You could do the same thing with me with engineering." What in the world do I know about engineering? I've trained to be a pastor. You've trained to be an engineer. Let's use our gifts and serve God together. You can't alter the roles. Doesn't that make perfect sense? That makes perfect, perfect sense. All right, Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Can you imagine trying to trip up Jesus? And they sent out unto him their disciples with, uh, with the Herodians, saying... So here you have the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hated each other. It's always interesting, the people who unite in opposition against Christ, okay? Saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any men, for thou regardest not the person of men. Isn't that just disgusting, the flattery that these people who hate Jesus are giving him? Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their, what? Wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So what is this? Jesus Christ is identifying two distinct spheres. All right? You have, and and we can move this forward into the church age, you have the church and you have government. They're two different organizations. God established human government and God established the church. Is that right? But they are separate. They're separate. Very important that we get this. All of you who read David Barton and uh, D. James Kennedy and Peter Manuel and uh, Gary North and Rousash Rushduni and all of these Christian reconstructionists who are trying to reestablish a Christian government, what they fail to understand is that we can have Christians in government, but there can never be a Christian government unless all of those in government are saved and all of the subjects are saved. Then you have a Christian government. Other than that, you have a despotic leadership that says believe this or die. That's why we believe in the separation of church and state. Based on individual soul liberty, we read the letter... um, uh, some, some said that they weren't clear. When I read you that letter the other day, it was from Thomas Jefferson to the Baptists of the Danbury Baptist Association. Thomas Jefferson said he recognizes everyone's right to live their own godly life and that there is a wall of separation between the church and the state. All right? He wrote that in 1802. I think he wrote it on a Friday. That Sunday, he went to hear his friend, the Baptist preacher, John Leland, preach a sermon at the Treasury Building in Washington, D.C. They had a church service in the Treasury Building, the Baptist preacher John Leland preaching. Apparently, there's a difference between separation of church and state the way that Jefferson understood it and the way that the American Civil Liberties Union understands it, amen? What we mean by separation of church and state is the state cannot tell the church what to believe or teach. Can't do it can't do it. The Establishment Clause of the Constitution says we will not have a state religion, a governmental, national religion that says if you're going to be a citizen of the United States, you must be a part of this church. That's what the Establishment Clause teaches. And all the people that want to take prayer out of schools or whatever, they know that's what it teaches. They're liars. Don't debate with them. Call them liars, When you stand up, when you tell the truth, you're a liar. You know that's not what that means. You know, well, the Supreme Court is, I don't care. You know that's not what was intended by Jefferson or by Madison in the First Amendment. You know that's not what it was. Well, it's grown to mean, then say that. You see? Separation of church and state says the government has no say what goes on in here. Let me say that again. The government has no say about what goes on in here. None. They cannot make us marry people of the same gender. They have no right to do that. Why? Because we're endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. The first one that was mandated was the right of the free expression of religion. It's very important. See, the change that's been made, Hillary Clinton says that we practice toleration. No, toleration is where the king lets you live. Liberty is where the king has no say. See the difference? We have one king. What's his name? Jesus. Those are the Baptist distinctives. Those are the things that make us distinct from every other Christian denomination. And it's very important that we understand what we believe and why we believe it. And you ready for this? You young people. All you young people, look up here at me. I want you to understand something. We're right. We're right. Why? Because we believe the Bible. We're right. You know what that means? Somebody believes something other than this? They're wrong. Very important. It's very important that we get that. We are not dualists here. We believe in one truth, the truth of the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Word. Lord, I pray if there's someone here that's not saved, that they'll get saved today.